So, we're continuing in Psalms 146 and 147. If you got the email I sent, next week we plan on doing 148 and 149. The following week, 150, and then we'll have time, and I would like maybe some people to share which one or two or seven or 149 of the Psalms meant a lot to you as we've been going through this for the last almost five years. So there will be time to share that, I believe. So, Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Now, each of the Psalms from 146 through 150 begin and end with the same word. It's the word hallelujah. Or, as it is translated, praise the Lord. Hallelujah is a two words squished together. Hallel is praise. And Yah is a contraction for the name of God. So Elijah, part of his name is for God. Okay, we'll see that all the way through the Old Testament especially. Now the word hallelujah is one of those words, another one of those words, that based on its meaning should be set apart uniquely for Christian use. But as we all know, it has been trivialized to some extent. Yes, we have songs like the Hallelujah Chorus that clearly point to praising God. But there's also that very popular song, Hallelujah, written by Leonard Cohen in 1984 that does anything but honor the Lord. It has a beautiful haunting melody and it has been recorded by multiple groups. Um, as many as 60 different groups have recorded that song. Pentatonics, Jeff Buckley, Bon Jovi, I mean you go on and on and on. And we look at a portion of the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> portion of the lyric said really want to show you Lord but it won't take long my Lord hallelujah oh excuse me I got the page in the wrong spot hold on I gotta hit pause okay a portion of the lyrics go like this 
Now I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased you, Lord. But you really don't care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth. The minor falls, the major lifts, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. And it goes, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Then the next verse. Well, maybe there's a God above. As for me, all I've ever learned from love is how to shoot somebody who outdrew you. But it's not a crime that you hear tonight. It's not some pilgrim who claims to have seen the light. It's, no, it's a cold and a very broken hallelujah. Well, people, I've been here before. I know this room and I've walked the floor. You see, I used to live alone before I knew you. And I've seen your flag on the marble arch. But listen, love, love is not some kind of victory march. No, it's a cold and it's a broken alleluia. Now, I've done my best and I knew it wasn't much. I couldn't feel, so I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come here to London just to fool you. Even though it all went wrong, I'll stand right here before the Lord of song with nothing, nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. It has nothing to do with praising God. Nothing. And then there's that popular song, which I started to read out of, took out of turn here, by George Harrison of the Beatles fame. Came out around 1970. A portion of those lyrics are, My sweet Lord, my Lord, my Lord, I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. Really, I want to show you, Lord. It won't take long, my Lord. Hallelujah. My sweet Lord. Hallelujah. My Lord. Hallelujah. My Lord. Hallelujah. And this song, again written, was wildly and still is wildly popular. My sweet Lord has overt religious connotations and references. What makes the religious content of this song different from most, however, is its usage of both Christian and Hindu terminology. Harrison's goal in combining both religions in one song was to call out religious sectarianism. And how often do we hear people blurt out the phrase, Hallelujah! But lost in this term is the sole purpose of praising God. That's what the word means. Spurgeon, in his opening comments, was writing about Psalm 146. And he was speaking about the word translated, praise the Lord. And Spurgeon wrote this over 135 years ago. He wrote this, It is saddening to remember how this majestic word has been trailed in the mire of late. Its irreverent use is an aggravated instance of taking the name of our God in vain. And he wrote that 130 some years ago. So if we were doing it then, it's on steroids now. And we see the irreverent use of God's name everywhere, even down to emojis. What makes it worse is that so many so-called Christian leaders drags not God's name into the dirt as well. I could cite example after example. They are very easy to find and it's sickening to hear. For that reason, I don't even, I could go out and give you example after example. But I don't want to pollute the air of this class by quoting some. But we can and sure should agree 
with what Spurgeon wrote later in that same paragraph. After he said that what, what we just wrote, he said this, With holy awe, let us pronounce the word hallelujah, and by it, by it summon ourselves and all others to adore the God of the whole earth. Now we don't know for sure who wrote this psalm. The Septuagint, interestingly, attributes these two psalms to Haggai and Zechariah. But we don't know. There's little, little evidence. It doesn't matter, but it'd be kind of cool if it was. But what matters is the content. The theme of the last six psalms is very, very clear. Praise the Lord. Or hallelujah. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins like this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These remaining psalms back up that statement. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 145 through 150. And as we read through these last six psalms, it kind of reminded me as a was thinking about this, of a waves of an ocean. If you sit there, you know, a lot of people like go to the ocean, just watch the waves come in for a while. And they just come again and again and again to the shore. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I did a manual count and could be a little inaccurate, but I did a manual account of the times praise the Lord occurs in the last six psalms, and I came up with 44 times. If nothing else, this should tell us this is kind of important, that we praise the Lord. And again, when we look back on the subjects covered in the first 145 psalms, subjects like grief, sin, our enemies, doubt, weakness, sickness, fears, regardless of the struggles, regardless of the heartache, regardless of anything else, our charge, our joy is to follow verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. <coughs> Probably be a good idea if I would, and maybe you could too, just put that, put that down and post it on a wall of your house somewhere. Right? We need to do that. <coughs> Boyce wrote on this, especially the first verse. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. He said, do we understand that all God is doing in our lives or in our world? Of course not. But we understand enough about the nature of God to praise him in all our difficulties. And speaking to the second line of verse 1, Spurgeon wrote this, When we praise God, let us arouse our innermost self, our central life. We have but one soul. And if it be saved from eternal wrath, it is bound to praise its Savior. Come heart, mind, thought. Come my whole being, my soul, my all. 
be all on flame with joyful adoration. Up, my brethren, lift up the song, praise ye the Lord. Wherefore, let me put my soul into the center of the choir. I like that. Let me put my soul into the center of the choir. And then let my better nature excite my whole manhood to the utmost height of loving praise. And then verse 2. I'm going to go back on this for just a minute. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. You know, there is never a time when praising God is completed. Well, we're done. We did. No. I praise God as long as I live. Spurgeon tells the story of a man that no one's ever heard of here. I'm 99.999% certain named John Janeway, who was on his deathbed. And there he cried out on his deathbed, Come, help me with praises. On his deathbed. Come, help me with praises. Yet all is too little. Praise is now my work. And I shall be engaged in this sweet work now and forever. Turn to David's psalms and let us sing a psalm of praise. I will sing with you as long as my breath doth last, and when I have none, I will do it better. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. Going on, because we could just sit there and just live in that for a while. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Now, at first glance, you might wonder how in the world the subject of verse 3 and verse 4 fits with, I will sing my praises to God while I have my being. It says, don't put your trust in princes. You know what? We praise those who have value to us. Don't we? Think of a sports team who has an extremely good player, an MVP type player. If the team did not have those types of people on their team, that, that team wouldn't be nearly as good. So hence the top tier players get a lot of accolades, don't they? A lot of praise for what they do. And I might add, we like to have our heroes. For whatever reason, we do. Verse 3 and 4 compare then the strength of God, who is totally deserving of our praise, as long as I live, as long as I have my being, compared to any and all men. To make the comparison as stark as possible, the writer states that there is no salvation in any man and all of them return to dust. So the contrast is huge. I'm going to praise God, who is eternal, who provides salvation. I'm not going to put my trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. 
when his breath departs, he returns to earth, and on that very day his plans perish. The contrast between God and man is massive and is brought out in these verses. Now, I was thinking about this. We as Christians need to be careful that we don't overly praise our spiritual leaders and our mentors, those to whom God has used in our lives. Yes, we can thank God for them. We can praise them if they're still alive. Hard to praise them if they're dead. We can point others to their teachings and their insights. But our tendency is to praise men. Think about the cities that win the Super Bowl. What do they do? They have a Super Bowl parade, right? Thousands, hundreds of thousands show up and just throw accolades and praise and praise on this team. But our praise, our trust, needs to be placed in God, not in man. And just to, just to uh, bring about a, a, the concept of how quickly the praise of man goes away, uh, Boyce put a, took, put a picture or a, a, a story in his... Uh, his commentary, and I went and looked it up a little bit. I didn't know really very much about this guy, um, but there was an historian, Roland Prothero, who translated from St. Francis of Assisi, and he wrote in a book called The Psalms and Human Life. It was written in 1903 about the death of William the Conqueror. Well, I'd heard of William the Conqueror, but I could go about that deep in anything about him. I knew he was from England. <laughs> you know, that's about it. But this is interesting. Claiming as his own the borderland of France and Normandy. And by the way, this impacted world history from then on. Claiming as his own the borderland of France and Normandy for England... William swore by the resurrection and splendor of God that he would light a hundred thousand candles at the expense of Philip, who was in France. He kept his word. Cornfields, vineyards, and orchards blazed up to the gates of Mantes. And the border fortress itself lay a heap of burning ashes. In his hour of triumph, William received his death wound. His horse, stumbling among the embers of what he had put on fire, threw the king upon the iron pommel of his saddle with such force that he received a fatal injury. Carried to Rouen to die, he caused himself to be conveyed from the noise of the city to the abbey of St. Jervius. His attendants hastily mounted their hero, their horses, rode at speed to secure their houses and lands. His servants, after stripping the body of the dead king, made off like, quote, kites with their prey. In a house not his own, fully stripped by his servants, there lay on the bare floor from the first to the third hour of the day the body of the mighty king whom now a hundred thousand warriors whom but now a hundred thousand warriors had eagerly eagerly served 
before whom many nations had trembled in fear. Put not your trust in princes, moralizes the, chron the chronicler, which are not ye sons of men, but in God, the living and true, who is the maker of all. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them, for all flesh is grass, and all the glory of it as the flowers of grass. The grass withereth, and the flowers thereof fades away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, I never heard how William the Conqueror died. He was riding his horse after just torching the land, put the horse over stuff that was hot, so the horse bucked, he fell forward on his saddle and killed himself. And everybody scattered. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on the very day his plans perish. Going on in verse 5. <clears throat> Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now we live in an age where self-reliance is got thought of as a good thing to possess. This was brought out by an article written by someone named Catherine Moore on April 15th of 2019, and it was published in Positive Psychology. I wouldn't recommend you get that as a magazine, but the article begins this. Self-reliance is all that it sounds like, plus considerably more. In Positive Psychology, Self-reliance has strong theoretical significance thanks to its implications for happiness. You will probably notice some overlap or at least potential implications for self-worth, self-expression, self-knowledge, resilience, and for self-acceptance. So it is not about doing everything yourself. It's not about being financially independent either. And it's certainly not about shouldering every hardship you face on all your lonesome. In this article, we'll have a look at what being self-reliant really refers to and how we can develop it within ourselves. We thought you might like to download our three self-compassion exercises for free. These science-based exercises will not only help you increase the compassion and kindness you show yourself, but will also give you the tools to help your clients, students, or employees show compassion and develop the confidence to rely on themselves. That's the world we live in. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is yourself. No. <laughs> Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This is in direct opposition to Psalm 146, 5. And we also have Jeremiah 17, 7. This comes right before the heart is deceitful above all things in Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. 
I'm going to have to go back. Man, I just printed these all mess. <laughs> God, I didn't get out of this. Every other religious thought, accepting Christianity, places their hope on the works of man, places my hope on myself. Did I do enough good to get to heaven? That's what all of them are based on, one, one way or another. There's not any exceptions, except possibly atheism, which says there's no afterlife anyway. It's really, you know, that's the only exception I can think of. And then we go to verse 6 to 9, which gives us a brief summary of why it is best to have God as our help. No one else can do what he can do or he has done, not even close. Verse 6. It is God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps his faith forever, who executes judgment for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. As we read these verses, we can see why we should praise the Lord and praise the Lord, O my soul. Each of these things is beyond incredible, and we could spend a lot of time on each one of them. Creation. Justice. Provision, forgiveness from sin and the penalty of sin, love, protection, and even judgment. We could spend a week or two or three on each of those attributes of God in more detail. But it's also beneficial to see them all wrapped together. In these few verses, so we can get this the sense of the enormity of what God has done. And once we get that sense, we should praise the Lord as long as I live, as long as I have my being. How long are you going to have your being? Forever. 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 So it's, it's, it's not just, it doesn't stop, as, as that one guy on his deathbed said, it doesn't stop then, it keeps on going. And if we have not been living with this mindset, you know, it's never too late to start living with that mindset. Why? Because that is addressed in verse 10. There will never be a time there will never be a time where God will not be reigning. There will never be a time when this will be something that is behind us, which is a good thing. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And then it ends with hallelujah or praise the Lord. So, it's a short psalm. It's got a lot in it. And we could, we could, like I said, we could spend 
a month or two on all those attributes of God. But now we got to go through Psalm 147. Psalm 147. It's 20 verses long, so we won't read it all to begin with. But again, this is one of those psalms, as we stated when we started Psalm 146, that begins and ends with the statement, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. While each of these psalms has its emphasis on praising God, I think in your notes, we've talked about the different elements of what to praise about God. Psalm 146, I will praise him as long as I live. Psalm 147 speaks to what we can praise God for. Psalm 148 tells us where God should be praised. Psalm 149, how to praise God. And then Psalm 150 kind of summarizes it all. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Again, Spurgeon wrote, For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is good because it is right. Good because it is acceptable with God. Beneficial to ourselves and stimulating to our fellows. The goodness of an exercise is a good argument with good men for it is continual practice for its continual practice singing the divine praises is the best possible use of speech I like that singing the divine praises is the best possible use of speech it speaks of God for God and to God and it does this in a joyful and reverent manner now, Psalm 147 return, refers to God 18 or more times. All the way through it, it refers to God. Everything in this psalm points to him. The psalm can be broken into multiple sections. They all deal with the praising of God. And the first section is verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It is good because it is right. Why is it good to praise God is brought out in all the verses that follow. They provide a few but not exhaustive reasons. The first in verse 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Now, verse 2 has prompted a lot of commentators to think that this is speaking about the days of Nehemiah, when the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah 12.27 reads this, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring to them Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. It's possible that that's what this is talking about. We can't be certain, but it fits. Then we have in verse 3, in verse 2 and verse 3, outcasts and brokenhearted. You know, no matter what era, no matter what location on the globe, there's always going to be outcasts. And there's always going to be broken hearted. No matter where you go, 
Shangri-La that doesn't exist in, in the world. Spurgeon very correctly stated, he said this, hearts are broken in 10,000 ways, for this is a heartbreaking world. This is a heartbreaking world. These last few words, that, that's pretty accurate. It's a heartbreaking world. Have any of us here been spared this? I think not. We could all talk about heartbreak. But there's a few verses that point out God's reaching out to those who are brokenhearted or crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are, are oppressed. And then we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the Good Samaritan. Those two stories. And we'll conclude with Luke 5.32. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the Lord gathers the outcast, heals the brokenhearted. And then the next thing we see is in verse 4 to 6. Even with his greatness, with God's greatness, he cares for the humble. Verse 4. He determines the number of stars and gives all of them their names. No, you can't pay 25 bucks to the star registry and have them, you know, name a star. It, it's not the real name of the star. Okay. Verse 5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. So when we compare the greatness of God shown here, he determines the number of stars and gives them all, gives to all of them their names. I read, I think, I think this is the number. I read that there's a, there's a billion trillion stars. Okay. That's not right. That's too low. Too low. <laughs> Have you counted them? It's less than infinity. Oh, less than infinity, it is. One less. One less? Yeah, a you know, the mathematician should know that. But the greatness of God, his control, it, it's shown here by his control and his understanding of creation. Down to his interest in the individual who was humble before him. I mean, how do you comprehend that? The believers can rightly call God Father. Is beyond incredible. We think we put those two together and just and we and we read about that we can call God our Father, Romans eight fifteen and Galatians four six, and that's especially incredible 
when we understand that each of us, everyone here, me too, have rebelled against God in sin. But yet we can still have this relationship with this God who counts the stars by name. Yeah, you say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then in the next section, in verse 7 to 9, God provides for his creation. It says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds and he prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills and he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. From these statements of God, we see his work within creation. We see another glimpse, another piece of his sovereignty. No, Mother Nature is not at work within nature. God is. It was God who designed and created the hydrological cycle. He created and designed photosynthesis. He thought that up. Well, in our way of thinking, he thought it up. It came from his mind. He designed plants and animals and how they exist within creation. It is not a great cosmic accident. There's a a, uh, site out there called newscientist.com and they have a page titled this. Cosmic accidents colon 10 lucky breaks for humanity. Listed among these accidents are, and I'm not going to list them all, how we avoided the void, meaning Earth. Another one is comic accident, one giant leap for a single cell. The next one, comic accident, is blasting the Earth into life comic accident and then this one I really love this one comic accident the certainty of chance okay they did anything to deny God's work of creation and they base it on what lucky breaks so I'm going to put my trust in lucky breaks rather than the God who designed and controlled all this I mean what caught my attention on that article as it said the lucky breaks for humanity and these are just 10 I mean you could go on and on and on with a whole lot more I mean more than the 10 that they came up with But what we see in verse 7 to 9 is God provides for his creation. It was not a lucky break. And then in verse 10 and 11, we see God's delight. It says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, 
nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, those who hope in his steadfast love. Now these, ver- these two verses, again, are interesting to me. God's created creatures have strength and power. The horse is a strong animal. But notice what God takes pleasure in. The powerful things that he's created. The incredible force of nature that he created. No, he takes pleasure in those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love. That's just fun to think about. Strength and power are fun to observe. If you watched it last week, the speed and strength of the horses who just ran the Kentucky Derby is incredible. I'm a track and field fan, and I like to watch sprints and hurdles in particular, and the top athletes who do those events are, they're impressive. I mean, they're just beyond better than good. I mean, they're, they're impressive. And we put strong athletes especially in, you know, the more uh, popular sports, on pedestals. Football players and baseball players and basketball players, hockey players and soccer players. And they're paid insane salaries. Hundreds, hundreds of millions, in some cases, to play this sport because they're strong. But look what the Lord takes pleasure in. Quite a difference of where we place value. He takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in the Lord. So one last comment. When we understand that, do we understand how important it is to fear God? To fear means to revere, to honor, to respect, to obey, and to worship. God and place our hope and our trust in him. It's a whole lot more important than the best football, basketball, baseball, whatever sport player in the world. That's nothing. God takes pleasure in those who fear him. With that, we need to do that better. Then in verse 12 to 14, God's blessing on Jerusalem. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Now the subject matter here returns to Jerusalem like it was in verses 2 and 3. Here the writer gives God the praise for what was happening in the country. It is God's active role that he provides security, blessing, peace, and abundance. You know, we tend to think that these things are gained by our strength, our work, our intelligence. And I was typing that and I was drawn to, I guess this is the week for songs, I was drawn to another very popular song, sometimes recorded by Christian artists, Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me, written in 1955. And the lyrics contain a nice sentiment. It's got a nice melody. 
It has been sung all around the world. Oh, just by the way, to make it more contemporary, they've also written gender-neutral and secular alternate lyrics. So instead of from God as our father, it goes from earth as our mother. Or to love as our compass. And like I said, many Christian groups have recorded it. The main problem, and it's a big one, is with the original lyrics. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. It doesn't work. Why? God alone can bring peace. Verse 14. He makes peace in your borders. Peace can only come from God as God as people turn to God. The history of mankind supplies ample evidence that we are incapable of establishing any kind of lasting peace. What was it? Uh, miscongeniality. What do you want? World peace. You know? Yeah, everybody wants it. But as long as man's doing it, it ain't going to work. It can only work from God. He makes peace within your borders. And then verse 15 to 18. God's rule over creation. Very again, it's similar to verses 7 and 9. The attention turns to God's control over his creation. <clears throat> he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sent out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. This begins a very short description of God's presence and God's work in the natural world. God's work in the natural world begins with his command to the earth and his word that runs very swiftly. His word runs very swiftly. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and the marrow, and is discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now that's a fairly familiar verse, but it goes on, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The focus here in Psalm 147 is about God's role in creation, but that he, he created it with his word. You know, if God created the world, the universe with his word, we should expect God's word to be as effective outside of his physical creation as it is within his physical creation. And then this psalm ends with verse 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. 
The verses just before 19 and 20 deal with God's control over creation. And now the, atten the attention turns to Israel and that God selected Israel specifically to be his chosen people. Why did God choose Israel to be his chosen people? Because he did. That's all, that's all we need to know. Because he did. We could list a few reasons, but all those reasons come from a human perspective. God chose them and placed them because he did. Spurgeon concluded with his thoughts on this psalm with this. Israel had clear and exclusive knowledge of God, while others were left in ignorance. The nations were covered with darkness, and only Israel sat in the light. This was sovereign grace in its fullest noontide of power. When we have mentioned electing, distinguishing love, our praise can raise no higher. Therefore, we close with one more hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And the reason God chose Israel, I don't know, but he chose them to bring, usher in the Messiah so we could have salvation. Couple pretty cool psalms. You got three more to go and then we'll miss them for a while. Let's bow for prayer, shall we?